Hello, this is Paula. And this is Susanna. And And this this is is the the Joy Joy of Home Home podcast. The Joy of Home is a podcast about stories of the love of home, the joy of your own home, how you make your spaces personal to yourself. We'll have conversations about what makes a happy home with a variety of guests. And you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, hello and welcome back for another episode of Joy of Home. This week we have my wonderful friend Kate Silverton as our guest. I had thought about a few things I could say about you, but then I realized that I probably say it all wrong and don't get all your amazing history correctly. So Kate, how about you give us a bit of an introduction and tell us briefly for those who don't know you yet. Okay, firstly to say how gorgeous it is to see you both um, and and thank you for inviting me on. I'm very excited about doing this podcast for many reasons. So for me, who am I? Well, I am, formally I should say, well, I am a broadcaster, a journalist, a published author and now a child therapist. Amazing. That's an impressive list. It is. It is an impressive <laughs> list. <laughs> my my dad would be really proud. My dad was uh, self-employed all his life and he had many jobs as well. And he always followed his heart and his joy. And I obviously get it from him. And it, it's, it's only now as I sit here in this very sort of uh, contained space, we've just moved to the country and, and I'm reflecting, it's doing this podcast, I'm now reflecting, actually, what and who am I? Um, no, but that's that's my sort of, uh, that's the short, that's the short answer. But yeah, I've been a broadcaster for, oh, goodness knows, three decades at least, I should think now, without giving too much away in terms of my age. Uh, yeah, more than three decades. Um, journalist, I have been the lead presenter uh, for the sort of breakfast program on the BBC, the one o'clock, six o'clock, 10 o'clock. I've reported from conflict zones and uh, and lots of lovely sort of red carpet. I've strictly people might know me from and and now a published author and child therapist. I've changed my career and my path, all still using all the skills and, and uh, the skill set and the things that I've learned over the years. But yeah, life has changed, as you can see from behind Amazing. me. Amazing. I love stories like these because I, I know you. I remember you as a, as a broadcaster. I remember you on the news. I remember you on the breakfast um, morning shows. And of course, I remember you um, on Strictly. And it's so fascinating that you have that you have pivoted and changed career. Although I do believe that your academic background was always in child psychology. 
Is that true? Yes. Yeah, I've come. Yes, I've come. Thank you, Paula. I've come. Yeah, I've come full circle. It's funny, isn't it? When you think when I have been on TV, I'm this in this little sort of hole of anonymity here. So it's funny when you think, actually, so I have done uh, sort of strictly in things, much to my children's amazement. <laughs> but, but yeah, so uh, my, my, my academic background is in psychology. So I really have come full circle. So how did you end up working in broadcasting then, if you, if you were in completely different it's line a great of... question so my my mom had these aspirations for me to to get a job that was a sensible job and I very not sensibly got a job in the city uh, which was very not sensible because I'm really rubbish with figures I think I probably <laughs> have like dyscalculia you know the equivalent I mean I'm rubbish failed my corporate finance exams and and was really not very happy and a very one of my best friends Jamie who I'd been traveling with in Zimbabwe We'd, we'd volunteered with an organization called Operation Raleigh, which still exists in a form, Rally International. And he was very poorly with pancreatic cancer. And I'd, when I was in Zimbabwe and, and traveling, I'd been on the West Bank, I'd been traveling in many, many different places. And I always took a dictaphone with me and I was always interviewing people. I was always keen to hear people's stories and how people lived and who they were and to get an insight. And he said, I went to visit Jamie in hospital and and I was was very unhappy in, in corporate finance and he said what are you doing you know with the big shoulder pads and the bigger hair like this is not you you know this is not the person that I was in shorts sort of barefoot in the Zambezi river he didn't have very long to live and he said to me just please promise me that you will follow your heart and follow your dream you always wanted to be a journalist you always said you wanted to be a journalist what are you doing and it was a very few weeks later on Valentine's Day that I phoned from the office in the city, phoned the hospital to see if I could go and visit. And they told me that he passed away. And after sobbing, and he was only 26, and after sobbing, he was this brilliant guy, zoology, first in zoology from Cambridge, very beautiful, just, you know, one of our best friends as a tight group of us who are still very, very close as friends. And and so after sobbing under the desk for a little bit, I resolved to make good on that promise to Jamie. And I was dating a lovely guy, um, Anthony, Tony, and he knew somebody in the Northeast, another Tony, and he was the political editor at the time. And it was literally sort of one of those situations where I phoned my boyfriend and just said, can I just, do you think I could just go make the tea? And, and he was working at BBC uh, Radio Newcastle, Tony. And so um, I called him and just said, I'll make the tea. I'll do whatever. I just, can I just come and, and, and get some work experience? And he was very generous and just said, yeah, sure, you know, come on up. So I took my leave from work. I uh, took a week off. And I went to Newcastle. I walked into that BBC newsroom and people were throwing bits of paper at each other. And like, you do the, do the, and I thought, oh, I'm this home. Is it. it was like, you know, it was just this feeling of, you know, people were shouting, get on the air. You know, it was very vibrant. And, and I just thought, I'm home. And that was the only thing, the feeling. And it was a few weeks later that I, I just, I followed my heart. And I gave up, I handed in my resignation. My dad was like, yay. He was like this London cabbie. You know, he was always just, you know, you know, work hard, but dream big. 
And my mom was like, oh, no, she's not going to have a wage. <laughs> so there was this real imbalance. And I, I had about three different jobs. I started making sandwiches on the side at my boyfriend's uh, sandwich shop, Picnic Basket in Durham, my uh, gorgeous um, uh, Tony. And um, I was making sandwiches in his shop, getting up really early in the morning, going in and doing sort of any job that I could, making tea, doing it, you know, the good old fashioned way, really. So I say to, to, to kids now, like, you just got to get in there, make yourself useful. And bit by bit by bit, I was gaining ground. And I eventually got the traffic and travel job, which I loved. And I really made it my own. And I went out, I did loads of research, I sort of spoke to all the police and the ambulance and really made it my own and started getting quite a following. And then I started getting some exclusive stories. And then the rest, as they say, is history because my boss, he said, well, hang on, who are you? And I thought, I want to be a journalist. And they said, well, we better get you some training then. So they sent me to London and, and that was it. That was sort of the rest from there. So I've been telling people's stories ever since. And in a way, I'm still helping children to tell their stories now. So I really do feel that I've come full circle. Absolutely. I mean, that is just such a wonderful and incredible story. And I love really the is. fact that... Um, I mean, it's a very poignant story. Your your friend knowing, nailing what life is all about, isn't it? About trying to find our joy and really trying to follow our heart, which which can be hard and you know, it's not easy to do. But my goodness, if we can if we can get there somehow. If we can get there somehow, it's I, I, I think I, I, I say this now and actually sort of with the wisdom of all the added years since is that I talk about providence and how it follows you, that when you are brave enough to say, this is what I want, this is what brings me joy, then providence follows you. And there's that sort of net that will catch you. And it does take courage, but life really is too short, as we know. And it's just when you make that first step, follow your heart. And I always, I say to my children now, when they, you know, follow your heart because you'll never be working. You'll never work a day again because you'll be doing something that brings you joy. So true. And if it stops bringing you joy, then you change. And it takes courage to do that. And people say, well, that's easier said than done. It's like, well, I don't come from wealth. I don't come from privilege. I've always just made it work by hard work, but also allowing myself to, to follow my heart in that way. So I, I think it is an important message for people. It really is. I think also when you follow your heart, you, you see the signs, don't you? Because often along our journey in life, there are openings and opportunities. And when you're scared, when you live life scared, you don't see those, do you? You sort of like you, you live right. a blink of life. And people say, well, I didn't get that opportunity. I, I wouldn't have been in that position. But it's often because we're too scared to look, aren't we? Mm. Yes. It's and take action. That. Like move from London to Cotswolds. I mean, that takes plenty <laughs> of courage, doesn't it? Well, again, I think it's follow. It's I talk from a sort of soul perspective now. It's, it's what fuels you. And what brings you joy? And it got to the stage, I said to my husband, we don't need to be in London. And I just want to be around trees. And I know I'm surrounded by cardboard boxes right now <laughs> because I still haven't quite finished the office unpacking. But if I flip the camera the other way, there's the most heavenly view of trees. And I write a lot about neurobiology and, and neuroscience and our nervous system, which is what effectively drives so much of our health, particularly our mental health anxiety sort of is fed upwards really from our nervous system. So when our nervous system is in balance and calm, 
then we are calm. That's how we feel calm. So it is our surroundings. This makes me anxious. If I look at this behind me, I'm like, oh, this I can't bear. But there's also something in being able to sit with things that bring us anxiety and hold, do the holding, what we call in therapy, that sort of holding and containing saying, it's okay, I'm going to get this done. I can still look at my trees outside. They're going to sort of bring me joy. But it's 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 an important message about nature and why does it make us feel calm? Why do we are we able to then be more creative? And and it is because our nervous systems respond to our surroundings. And it's it's again, it's why it's so important. It's incredibly soothing. Yeah. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And, you know, we've just come back from a walk, my husband and I, and it's just, I, I, I think... We just to find green spaces. But anyway, coming back to the big move, Susanna, you and I, that's where we first sort of met and bonded. Shall we? Do you, knowing... share, do you want to share the story? No, share how we it. got started? Well, on, I, we I'd love to hear you. the Go story. On. Well, it's just, I, I feel like that this obviously puts me in a slightly unprofessional light. So I'm not really sure how flattering <laughs> the story is for me. But basically, I offer coaching for aspiring well, I guess content creators or people who just want to get more confident on doing stuff on Instagram and sharing their their content and their stories. And Kate here sent me an email and had booked a discovery call with me. And then she sent an email just kind of like adding a few more extra details, which was obviously very useful. So I could prepare for the call and see if we could, you know, work together. And the call we it sort of got off a little bit already on those emails like <laughs> the, the, you know the personal details became you know it's it just yeah there was like a slightly different feel to already that and then we jumped on the call Kate was like 30 minutes late but I patiently waited because you know that's just <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry again yeah <laughs> <laughs> I'm such a gracious person. Like, look at me not even mentioning it now because, you know, I'm so over yeah, it. Yeah. I was absolutely yeah. fine with that. <laughs> it, it obviously hasn't stayed with you. <laughs> exactly. Like, I'm completely over it. I'm 100% she over it. You stood me up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so we then started talking, and I think we spent maybe five minutes on the topic, and somehow <laughs> we got into this conversation about creating like a communes and rewilding <laughs> and planting trees and living the yeah. life as oh. we would both like to live our lives and finding our dream houses in the country. And the 20 minutes where came and went, and I think we in the end, we spent about nearly two hours just oh, talking yeah. and talking. And we both, both felt really like, I felt so inspired afterwards. <laughs> I'm like, we just That's like, wonderful. there was some sort of like a magical spark in there with all our, we, we just had such similar ideas, how we see our lives turn out to be in the next five years. Kate is obviously now ahead of me because I'm still looking, but look, she has already 
Oh, we've got each other's hands. I'm just, I want you to come live right next door. Oh, and, perfect. Um, and can we just add that Susanna actually had me, I would say she had me at hello, but she had me at the opening doors. You know, everyone will be familiar <laughs> with the doors, right? It's that, it's that, isn't it? And I'm like, this is the girl for me. Absolutely. I think we all I, I, I want to go and live in her house. I want to go and live in her house and I want to have coffee. You know, your, your little burner that you've got, oh, yeah. like every time I, I'm looking and I'm like, oh, I just want to go and sit. I want to go and hang with her. So it, it, it wasn't even about the, cons- yeah. you didn't realize this. I was just stalking you. So exactly. just basically, I'm just like, I want to know. But it, you know, there was, it's, I think it's been this beautiful connection and I've missed because we haven't, because of the move and everything, but we keep checking in with each other. And yes, we were at the same stage, weren't we, of looking and then suddenly everything, just all the stars aligned for us um, and, um, and we've now moved and I'm itching for you and I keep sort of trying to entice you nearer here. Yeah, it doesn't take much enticing. Yeah, that would be wonderful, absolutely. So you were telling me the other day that you have now been learning how to prune apple trees, which size. That's probably all Paul's street. Like you two can now oh. share all these wonderful stories. No, no. I'm still I'm I'm still learning. Fifteen years later, I'm still learning. Everything I do is me sort of like self self sort of like teaching myself what to do. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but that's the fun. That is the mm. fun, isn't mm. it? I mean, I am a little bit, you know, the, 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 I've got some really lovely neighbours now. And um, so they're helping me out. And I think they're sort of slightly like, the, you know, these girls come from the country. <laughs> I mean, my garden before was that terrible. We had a, it was literally as big as this desk. I mean, it was literally sort of two metres by two metres. And that's that's sort of the, what what drove that desire and now we've got a much bigger garden and and now I'm having to learn how to do it but it's I've just got my first pair of secateurs you know (laughs) I've got a gardening apron I'm getting a tripod ladder um I've got to get all the gear and no idea (laughs) I I remember it well it was um we did the same thing we did a move from London I'm a South London girl I was born and bred and um, brought up in South London but I had this image of this countryside and the country house and space and sky and being able to see stars like I used to. In South London, you could see stars at nighttime when you looked up and then suddenly you got sort of like the um, light pollution and you couldn't really see. But um, I love looking up at the stars and thinking it reminds me of my childhood. Seeing everything yeah. Well, actually, I should say, Paula, there was also you inspired me. There was an I can't remember where the interview was, but you did an interview, it was a press interview, and that inspired me just hearing your story oh. as well. Well, it was so was it always a passion of yours too? Where, where did you grow up? Was it in a, a town or city or it, a town? Um, so in Essex, so it was quite green, but I've always been an outdoor, so I joined the I've always been passionate about I'd much I am happier sleeping outdoors under the sky. Maybe not at the moment. Um, but, um, but Well, actually, I say that. I, I'm the kind of, you know, there's no such thing as bad weather type person. Very irritating for my kids. Um, but, you know, let's walk to school. Come on, it's a blizzard. It doesn't matter. Uh, so, you know, yeah. So, uh, so I'd always liked the outdoors and I was a girl guide from quite young and I was, I was always too. Loved- I loved it. Oh, I love, you know, well, I can't wait. I've just been in touch with the woodcraft folk here for the kids. And yeah, I really loved, you know, the whittling and the making. And, um, in fact, the children were laughing. I'm a great list maker. I'm going off on a, a tangent, but bear <laughs> with me. I used to write these notes of what I wanted in life. This is why oh, I think manifestation good. is yes. great. So I remember writing this thing about who I wanted to end up with my husband and on this list was that he was as comfortable driving a Land Rover Defender as he was 
sort of cycling or doing anything else, that he was um, as comfortable in country boots. And I was quite young when I wrote this. It was 16, 17, uh, quite a, a comfortable in country boots or a black tie mm. um, and that he'd be military. And really? You've all so that me a very long time to find my husband. But tick, tick, tick Whoa. is all I'm going to say. And the kids can't believe it. But I said, I, I've got the piece of paper somewhere How old in, were you? In, in here. How old were you when you wrote the piece of paper, when you wrote the list? Yeah, I think about 16, Amazing. 17. I was wow. quite young. That's quite yeah, a... There was this manifestation of what I wanted. So why, why I mention it is because that military side of things appeals to me. That's why I did Operation Rally. But I've always loved being so in Zimbabwe we were sleeping out under the stars the whole time and kayaking over sort of crocodiles in uh, Lake Kariba and I've always been I've always loved the outdoors and I've loved the thrill and the adventure so I think even though I didn't grow up in the country and I also blame the Mallory Towers you know the Enid Blyton type books that little people I was would read and it was all like oh everything was oh let's go out and play hide and seek in the trees um so quite idyllic I guess but yeah I guess if you don't grow up maybe in the country and you for me I used to go and sit on the on the little roof of my parents house they had like a little extension roof and I'd sit on that and look at the stars so there was always something there that that appealed Absolutely. I, I I had a lot of friends who were very sceptical about my move and they were sort of like, you're a city girl, you know, you've worked in fashion, you've done this, you know, why on earth would you go and sort of completely um, isolate yourself? But I even today, I, I go around a corner, there's a particular set of fields where it looks so expansive, you can't see the end, you know, it's just the horizon. And it makes my heart just sore. And I don't know why when I was, you know, I we did. I did grow up opposite a park, actually. So I did grow up with a view of trees, even though we were in deepest South London. And it, yes, there's something about your environment that, if you get it right, it just makes. And it, and it could be living amongst the hustle and bustle of, of towns and cities, but for me, it's seeing open space. I love to see open space. Well, I grew up in the country, and. As when I was a teenager, I swore I'll move to a city and I'll never set my foot to a countryside for more than, you know, a couple of days max. And then, yeah, I think it's just once we age, maybe there is something, maybe it's just the nature or maybe we just all feel like we want to go back to our roots. But I've definitely noticed that we kind of like have been moving gradually out from the London and always having a little bit more space around us and a little bit more space around us, a little bit further away from other people. And I feel like I'm quite ready to have really, really quite a lot of distance between me and other people. Anyone else? Obviously not my family, but yeah, yeah, exactly. So it just feels like, that. I don't know, maybe it just really has more to, do, more to do about the stage you are in your life that how you how you what what things do you appreciate and I mean these days I feel like with the online shopping and even your food gets delivered to your front door I mean that's been a revelation as well and I and I don't know whether there is a bit of a yearning for turning back the clock I'm sure a lot of us feel (laughs) that way in terms of slowing down I say to people I mood for a slower pace and more space and so I've just joined a farm well I'm hoping I'm waiting for the to see if I'm accepted on the waiting list but there's a wonderful community farm it's very popular as you might imagine the selection process you get you get, yes, yes. Is she is she right for it? Is exactly. She, does she know her difference? Let's see your wellies. Let's see your wellies. Yeah. Are they dirty enough? Has she actually used these, or are they yeah. just the fashionable ones? She's another ones? one from, the, from London. <laughs> but um, but the idea of going and picking, so they they deliver a basket of, or you go and collect your basket of vegetables every week, all organic, and then 
and then you in the in the summer you take the kids up and you go and pick your fruit but your investment of both your times so you go and work on the farm as well and um, but your investment um what you pay is also going into that sort of regenerative farming and sustainability and that's the message i think there's so much fear that is being projected at the moment about our world and and everything and quite rightly we do need to be awake to to the damage that we're doing to this beautiful planet but the way that we i think for me how we engage is by we have to empower our children to be hopeful um but for me it's about sustainability about looking and thinking well, seasonal eating and where does my food come from and how do I really nourish the earth and what are the best practices for farming and driving change. I found a dairy where the, the calves are not separated from mum as, as, as they are. So once you start learning and thinking, we, if we can start slowing down a bit, we start seeing about what, how modern practices in how we produce our food, where we get our food from. And I don't mean to be Pollyanna about it. As I say, I don't come from a, a any particular sort of well, privilege, certainly, but I'm learning and I'm keen to learn and I want my children to learn where their food comes from and to really start not being so wasteful and thinking, what are we wearing? What are we buying? And I think empowering our children to say we can start making steps that's where we get this collective much more positive way of saying now we can start engaging and caring about what we're doing to our planet um, and serving it a lot better than we have been absolutely goodness I mean those are very big picture topics and subjects which we all have to address is is this something is is that behind your change from broadcast to to what you do now was there something about the big picture I've you know I've, what sort of like um encouraged that change um so what the change to become a child therapist so you're a child therapist now and of course the, the broadcast was exciting and wonderful but very city-based I suppose and very um pacey very vibrant and pacey exactly that's a good word but yeah. um it's it's quite a pivot again I mean was that finding your joy again or yes Yes. Um, when, when, when things no longer bring me joy, I do turn. I think I'd had in my mind ever since having children, it, it took us a very long time to conceive. Um, and, and actually when we got married, we had made our peace with the fact that we wouldn't be able to have children. We'd tried for many years and lots of failed IVF. And, um, and I've spoken about this publicly previously, but I fell pregnant. What felt miraculously still feels miraculously given uh, my egg count at the time was sort of next to in negative territory I mean the doctors were like look give it up get married live your life and we'd made our peace with that and I fell pregnant naturally at 41 um, wow. incredibly um, and then again at 43 and there was such an element of being gifted my beautiful children um, having had so much hardship and heartache and then parenting being so bloody difficult. Yeah. <laughs> you know, go, oh, yeah. These amazing beings that have been gifted to me. Like, oh, like, yeah. and my husband was like, getting my green beret. He's a Royal Marine. Like, you know, getting my green beret was easier than this. So it was an element of like, oh, help. Yeah, um, they don't come and, with you know, manuals, do they? They don't come with no, kind of like, like you know, it's you don't wonderful. Yeah. Actually, no, it's pretty. Um, you know, I won't swear, but you know, it's it's actually not so much sometimes. And I went, I'd been working and volunteering with a number of cha children's charities, the Anna Freud Centre being uh, one of the main ones in London. And I'd been working behind the scenes, just supporting parents and seeing how they were supported by this amazing charity that is the Anna Freud Centre. And um, one of the professors there, Professor Peter Fonagy, 
I, I was so passionate for my own children, as you do. You're kind of asking as many questions. There were psychiatrists and neuroscientists. And I was like, what about this? And what about this? And what when they do that? And what's a tantrum? And what should I do when my children tantrum? And what they were teaching me was blowing me away. So I was like, well, that makes my life so much easier. I didn't realize that a tantrum is actually to do with the stress response and the nervous system. It's actually not naughty. It's the nervous system. Our children are overwhelmed physiologically. So I was like, this is amazing. Everyone needs to know this. And Peter wagged his finger and he said, yes, but we talk in big words and with long sentences. And so you as a journalist need to get out there and write a book and explain this in a way that parents will understand because it is amazing. We've got and these that's amazing what you advances did. now. And that's what I did. Yeah. So I set, set out to write this book, which was, is, is called There's No Such Thing as Naughty. I love and that name. it's all basically neuroscience made simple so that parents, when they look at their children, instead of thinking, what's wrong with yes. you? Naughty step thinking, straight away. Mm. What's going on for you right now? And how can I help? And, and that's it. And so um, that's where the book came from. And, uh, and the second one has just been handed in this week. Oh, incredible. Congratulations on that. Can Thank you tell you. us more about your second book then? Yeah, I'd love to. So the second, so the first book was really for children naught to five, because those are sort of these really hardcore years. And I was also writing it as my children were that age as well. I felt it was really important <laughs> um, to be authentically yes. sharing the stories of, <laughs> as well as joy, the woe as well of like, oh, when this happened and they tantrumed and everyone was watching and blah. Um, so now that they're older, I've written the next book is um, There's Still No Such Thing as Naughty. And this is for children of primary school age. Um, um, so uh, from five to 12. And again, and I think this is the period for, um, and I know, uh, you know, people, and I, it actually applies for children who are older, but I've sort of written it in a sequence of when my children are. And I think it's that time when parents start to ask, I have a lot of clients now in, in the therapy room, obviously, who for parents might say, you know, what did I do wrong? Have I left it too late? And they're worried about, obviously we're all worried about children's mental health now. And I can then sit and say, it's okay. Let's look at where we are and let's bring some hope in the room. And there are answers and there are answers. So even when, and I know some children are really struggling right now and parents are really struggling right now, there is always hope. So this book is full of hope. It's all, you know, it explains again, neurobiology, neuroscience. It explains how we can support our children's mental health, but our own mental health as well as parents, which I think is incredibly important. Mm. Absolutely. It sounds to me like it's a lot to do with stepping back and not having that first impulse, which is, you know, the child's naughty, the child's done something wrong, we've got to deal with what's wrong, or what we perceive as they've done wrong. And stepping back, being a little bit quiet and thinking, why? You know, it's, it's you know, why was that as opposed to let's deal with what's just happened? Exactly. Which, is, that. which, which you know, when you're when you're a tired parent, it, it's hard, you know, it, it, <laughs> it is a retraining the brain to not do the first thing that you think of, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, observing first and then reacting second. Yeah, not always yeah. so easy. I, I, in the first book, I had something I called stop snot. So when your child <laughs> is is like sort of lying prostate in the supermarket and everyone's watching, going, "What a!" and you think that you, you think they're saying, "What a bad parent!" and you know, "What a terrible child!" Is that that immediate sort of sense of shame that we feel of, "Oh, 
is actually, as I call it, the baboon brain, which is like, Rawr! and then we yeah. go into that, right, get up, come on, stop being <laughs> so naughty. Dragging the child out, yeah. And yeah, and what we can do, and I explains why I think it's so important to understand the brain, is that, so that part of our brain gets really beats his chest and is like, get up, you know. Whereas as you say, Paula, that when we can, and I just talk, so stop snot is basically stop, this is snot personal. <laughs> so it's basically, you know, when your child is in the middle of this stress response yeah. and is banging their fist on the floor, it's actually not personal. They can't help themselves. They are literally overtaken by this neurochemical wildfire. So when we can stop and think this is snot personal, however personal I do know it feels or it can feel, and then take that all important breath, as you say, Paula, take mm. a step back. Mm. That I'm breathing breath. now, just like yeah, I just feel so calm. <laughs> that one breath actually calms the part of our brain, the baboon and the lizard, the really ancient primitive part of our brains. And it allows what I call our wise owl, the prefrontal cortex, what I think of as the wise owl then going, hey guys, let's just chill out a second. We need to go in and help here. And she swoops down. And instead of the big baboon behavior, we get the wise owl scooping our children up and saying, hey, sweetheart, what's going on? You seem really overwhelmed or whatever words would be appropriate in whatever the setting. And I I do script it for parents as well, because I think sometimes you just want to know, what do I say now? You know, But it's that element of just being compassionate and tapping into the compassionate part that we all have, but that can, as I say, you know, when the baboon is bounding on his branch and going, oh, I'm being humiliated, you're not listening to me. It's really hard to parent in that compassionate way. Just stepping back, thinking this is not personal, it's triggering in me, but that's the behavior. It's not my child, it's the behavior that's triggering in me. And when I can just, it's almost thinking what we call vertical integration in, in, in therapy is we're looking and we're sort of getting our brain to engage from your top thinking brain, the problem solving brain, the prefrontal cortex. What I think of as a wise owl is that she looks down and goes, hey guys, I've got this. It's okay. Bear with me. And then she's the calming presence that can calm. And essentially it's that nervous system to nervous system that we're talking about. When my nervous system is not fizzy, as I think of it, um, then I can go in and soothe my child's nervous system. So very few words are actually needed. It's about nervous systems speaking to each other. I'm thinking now as a parent of two teenagers and one of them going through the, is the GCSE year for us this year. I'm thinking these are all, sounds like the book would be perfect for me as well. So it's, it's, it sounds like there's lots of coping methods, how you can just basically take the anger and the frustrations without losing your own temper in the process. Absolutely. And it's as much about, it is as much about our reaction. No blame or shame in there because we're all human. And actually, if we weren't taught, you know, whenever I I do quite a few adult mental health sort of corporate events now, and I'll say, put your hand up who was actually taught how to regulate your emotions when you were a child and very few hands go up. So what we're doing by helping our children to regulate, we're, when we can regulate our emotions, we can help our children regulate theirs. So a large part of the book, as you say, Susanna, is about how do we calm ourselves? And there's loads of really very, very fast ways of doing it because in that heat of the moment, but also to recognize that we are all human, we will make mistakes. And the power of an apology when we make mistakes is also a great learning for our children to say, do you know what, guys, I'm really sorry, I should have spoken to you more kindly. I, I, you know, and, and 
modeling to them that they don't have to be perfect then. Yeah, that's so important. And a quick one on, yes, and a quick one on teens, actually, which is really interesting. is a brilliant child psychiatrist, Dr. Dickon Bevington, who I I, I requested that he bring, again, from the Anna Freud Center. And I said to him, can you just bring your brain over and we'll have a cup of tea? So he brought this brain and taught me quite a lot. And and one of the things that still stays with me for when I get to the teenage book, but one of the things he said is that because of the sex hormones um, rushing in when our children sort of, you know, tip over into that preteen teenager. And when they rush in, they literally, the wise owl goes, oh, I can't cope with this. And so she sort of almost goes back into hibernation. So our children at teens are much more in that very reactive, very emotional baboon state that we saw when they were toddlers. So we really do need to cut them a lot of slack and almost go back to parenting them, not in a patronizing way of, oh, sweetheart, but just like, wow, this feels really difficult right now for you. I'm so sorry. And going in rather than like, don't you say that to go to your room. You don't talk to me like that, which again, we can all fall into. It's, it's perfectly, you know, there's no such thing, just as there's no such thing as naughty, there's no such thing as the perfect parent and neither should we aspire to be. There's no such thing. And it's in that rupture that we get these brilliant repairs of saying sorry and kind of calming ourselves and learning for next time and hopefully for our children to model with their children. Do you know, I was just about to say when you, you mentioned the model for their children, because my children have all hit 20. My, my babies are all in their 20s. And um, what I found looking back is too late now. But what I found <laughs> looking back is they they emulate you. They they. I can see now in their 20s that they are saying things and doing things that I used to do when when they were younger. And you realise that they, they have been like sponges. So if, if you react angrily to something that really could you could have taken a step back to, that's almost the sort of adults they become. So it's it's a real learning process for them too and teaching them how to deal with their anxiety and, the, and situations by teaching ourselves, isn't it? I mean... As I say, mine are 20. It's sort of like I'm, I, I now go, oh, I wish I dealt with that when they were 14 differently. But, you know, there's time for you. <laughs> there's time for No, but, but, but equally, Paula, you know, there are 80-year-olds in therapy whose brain we can, we can see brain changing. Um, and just as a thing for you, if your children are still in their 20s, their brains won't finish their development until at least their mid-20s. And actually, I've got a little, it's only a theory of my own, but from 20 to 26 is totally unscientific. Everything else I talk about is totally scientific, but just these are my observations that I think 20 to 26 can be quite a hard time. And I I sort of think of it as almost the brain going, look, the door's closing. I'm going to stop my development soon. So I'm going to throw up all the bits that still need addressing. <laughs> so I think for parents with children who are in their sort of 20s, like now is the time yes, to yes. get all, you know, do a bit of spring cleaning and like, Actually, You're so I right. Darling, you know, my sister still apologizes to her son for using the naughty step because, of, you know, having me as a sister, she's like, Oscar, I'm so sorry that I use the naughty step. And then I start going, it's mum, it's okay. But actually having quite interesting conversations of our parenting is really good for our children to, to know, again, that we're not perfect. We did what we thought was right at the time. Absolutely. Now science has shown us um, to do how we can do things differently. It's, I think, Maya Angelou, it was Maya Angelou said, when we know better, we do better. And that's mm, the only so thing true. I aspire to to I'm going to get things wrong I'm sure I'm going to look back in years to come but when I know I know I can do better and I'm always aspiring as a parent to do better in fact my children now rate me and my husband oh nice that sounds like yeah. a lovely little tradition it's yeah it's like a job appraisal it's oh great. my goodness that's brilliant yeah 
<laughs> what about what about environment then? So if if we 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 sort of like know perhaps we should take that step back and we should reevaluate how we deal with certain situations. But does environment matter? Does that change how ch- you know the happiness of children or how they how they feel? Uh, oh, sorry. So you mean does the environment change how we respond? How we respond or... and how and how they respond or how they act? Does that change? Yes. Yes. So if we think, would we be more stressed in a shopping mall that's really busy, really loud, and we've got to get back home and our children suddenly, uh, you know, melt down? Or if, you know, let's take going, getting out the door on, to school on time, which is a massive flashpoint for many parents. Why is that? Why is it always, you know, it can be so stressful? It's because we've, A, we've got to be on time, you know, and there's that shame. The baboon doesn't like to be shamed and he doesn't like to sort of be late and have the teacher wagging her finger at the, or his finger at the gate or whatever. So our stress levels, whenever our stress levels are high, our stress response kicks in. And what happens is it's the equivalent. If we're fizzy, if our little Liz is going, oh, I don't like this, I'm going to be late. And he runs up to the baboon. This is in my sort of metaphorical um, uh, uh, wise owl lizard and baboon um, analogy that that uh, he'll run up to the baboon, tug on his tail and go, we're in a state of alert. And then the baboon runs along the branch and hits what is in reality, our amygdala to say, we're in a stressful situation. There is potential danger. I might be shamed at the school gate. Or if you're in a shopping mall, oh, everyone's going to be looking, thinking that I'm a really bad parent. So whenever we are stressed, you can hear it almost in my voice as I'm reliving past <laughs> experiences, um, that, <laughs> that if we're in a stressed state, if the environment in which we're operating in is feeling stressful, we're going to be operating much more from our baboon place than the wise owl. And the same for our children. So if our children are at a birthday party uh, or they've been on a really high octane play date, they are much more likely to have a, what's called a tantrum, but in reality, what is out their stress response? It's that their stress response gets overwhelmed, that they've got neurochemicals flooding through their system saying, we're in a you know, this is a dangerous situation. It's noisy. There's people watching. I really want to have a few tears because I've just lost out on past the parcel, but everyone's going to laugh at me. All of that can put a child into fight flight. And I explain this in the book really, really simply, but fight, flight, freeze, response. So if we have children who then go mute, you know, that they kind of, if a teacher asks a question in the classroom, I know I'm going off piece, I'm going to bring it back. Sorry, Paula. But, um, you know, if a teacher sort of thinks that child has gone mute, actually, they've just gone into freeze. And so I think helping to understand how children's nervous system responds allows us. So if we are at a party or the shopping mall, anywhere that's really loud and our children are spinning out, we could, the first thing we can do is find a place of safety. And I mean safety by what feels safe to the nervous system. So it might be you go to a loo, you say, should we just get, you, you, okay, sweetheart, mummy's got you or daddy's got you. Let's go somewhere safe. The word safe really registers with the baboon brain of like, she's going to keep me safe. We'll go to the loo somewhere. We'll find a small space, a little corner even where we can get down with our children and say, all right, sweetheart, you know, and then work with them. So, and also for us, if we've got grandparents watching or friends watching, oh, again, our stress response is going to be up here. Whereas actually, if we say, if we're at a party, for example, say, 
can I just go, can we just find a bedroom that we, you know, just finding another room to take your child to, no blaming or shaming. You just say, let's just find somewhere a little bit dark and just go, all right, sweetheart, that was really odd. Okay, it's all right. And in that moment when the stress response is really high, the fewer words, the better. Again, what you're doing is conveying, I've got you. I can keep you safe. And that calms a child much quicker, much, much quicker than anything else you can do. Because when the baboon and the lizard are bounding and fizzing, the wise owl doesn't get a look in. So she's the one that takes in words and can problem solve. But if your child's in that really fizzy state, they can't hear words. It's just white noise. So you want to just, I've got you. It's okay. And rocking backwards and forwards, holding them if they if they if your child does like to be held, holding them and rocking them backwards and forwards is soothing for that really ancient part of the brain, the lizard, because that's how it felt when when our children were in the womb. So anything that takes us back, yes, that's yes. why we like sitting in hammocks and having sun on our face and feeling warm. Gosh, it makes so much because sense. Because takes the brain back to that lovely place when all was well. And I'm fed and I'm watered and everything is safe. So that anything that you can do just to sort of recreate that sense of being held and safe and calm is going to bring that nervous system back far quicker than anything else you can do. Fascinating. Oh. Absolutely mine is fascinating. fascinating. I, do, I do remember when mine were young, we would have this conflict, my husband and I, because he'd want to go to cafes. And I had three under three at one point. He'd <laughs> oh. want to go to cafes and restaurants. And I'd say, no, darling, I, I would actually rather have our meals at home. And I don't need to do these things. I'll do these things when we have a babysitter or if, if one of the grandparents can help. And I, was all, I always felt guilty because I thought, well, how do they learn to behave in a restaurant or a cafe if I don't take them? But I, I did a, you know, I did a blanket ban. I don't feel happy in that situation. I feel stressed. I will, all I'll do is I'll go into the cafe and feel, oh my goodness, are they going to, is one of them going to scream? So we had a bit of a ban of, of doing that. And then they got to an age when I felt comfortable and they were perfectly behaved. And I always wonder, is that because, should you not take them into an environment that you feel stressed at? Or should they Absolutely. be trained to be in that environment? I, no. I, so, so look, what, what we're hearing here is this incredible, empathic, instinctive parenting that we all have, and you have the foresight and, and the strength to say, actually, no, instinctively, I feel stressed, so therefore, we have to serve ourselves as parents first and foremost, because if we're stressed, we ain't going to be the calm parent that is going to be able to control three under three <laughs> in a really noisy restaurant. So again, going back and, and, you know, and I applaud that because trusting our instincts, this is what I want the book to do is to give parents. And in fact, it was one mum who said it to me. She said, I now know at the Anna Freud Center, she said, I now know how to parent because I've been on this amazing course. She said, but can you explain the science behind it? Because I've got grandparents who are telling me that I'm doing it wrong because I'm pandering to the kids or they should be trained to do this way. And that's the whole point of the book, because when you understand that under three, your children are operating in that very ancient part of their brain, the prefrontal cortex has not really come online fully yet. I call it more little owl. So she's unable to regulate a child's emotions and the baboon will always take over in a stressful situation. You would not have a hope of calming your children down in a situation that is so stressful that you're stressed and you've got three of them. And by the way, there's a contagion. 
that we see in the wild. Oh, yes. If you see one baboon who spots a, a leopard <laughs> yeah. and he beats his yeah. chest, <laughs> you bet all the other yeah. baboons will be beating oh, their children. chest as well. That's stress <laughs> contagion. So if you're stressed, your children are going yeah. to be stressed. No one's going to have a hope of a absolutely. nice time. So you're absolutely right. And I think that's what I'd love to say is take the pressure off your parenting. We sh- The word should should be removed because there's no should about it. If you feel good about a situation, great, go for it. Take things that your children, are, you know, take a book if they're old enough, take toys if you think you can engage them. But if you don't feel comfortable and in control, then no, <laughs> you, you do what yeah. you've just done, Paula. I think it's a really powerful message for parents. There's no should about it. You do what serves you and your nervous system. Makes sense. It's nice to have the permission, though, isn't it? It's nice to hear the professional tells us we don't have to do that. If it feels like a bad idea, we don't have to do it. Yeah. And I mean, our caveat is that we build, as exactly as you found, Paula, that when our children's brains are at that particular place of development where their wise owl can start engaging... Yes, of course, we're going to take our children and we're going to teach them that they don't run around and they don't throw their food and they don't do all the things that they do when they're toddlers. You can absolutely, I'm big on boundaries as well, but it has to come at an age appropriate time. We can't expect too much of our children when they're very young because they simply don't have the same brains as us. Their brain development is doesn't finish till they're in their 20s. So we have to sort of account for that and their behavior. Yeah, well, well that makes sense. Well, should we, if you need to go, should we try to wrap this up? Well, the only up? thing is, hang, just hang on, hold your horses, Suzanne. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I've not had, any, I've not had any design advice. Yeah. I've not spoken about interiors. <laughs> I only came on this podcast so I could get this incredible advice from both of you. <laughs> what to do with my home. Part and- two, part two coming. <laughs> Yeah, can we do a part two, please? <laughs> Where we actually talk about more of the, yeah. But no, this was so fun though. And it's really, it's I love the fact that we can do like, a, you know, have different people talk about different things. And I think that this is going to be so useful for lots of our listeners as well. That they can, I know Paul's wife is going to be listening and maybe even getting a book once it comes out because it's, they have, you have twins, don't you? They're quite young these days. Yep, we have two-year-old twin boys. Oh, right in the thick of it. So, Kate, can you tell us where we can find more about you and about your work and your new books? Okay, with pleasure. Thank you very much. So I am working on, I'm not as brilliant as you on the social media scene, and I hope to be Susanna. So we're going to, yet, yet, thank you. Uh, So you can find me at www.katesilverton.com. I also only really use Instagram right now, very badly, as you will see. Uh, I aspire, uh, I aspire to Susanna's standards, and maybe at some point I will actually get myself settled. It looks more of a jumble sale, my uh, Instagram site, than this peaceful <laughs> haven that I'm aspiring to. Um, and the book is coming out at the end of March, and it's called "There's Still No Such Thing as Naughty." And um, if you enjoy that, or if you've got younger children, there's there's no such thing as naughty. And thank you very much. If you do um, come to the page, I'll be very welcoming of you. And thank you, Susanna, for the opportunity as well. And, and Paula, it's been really lovely to see you. And, and given that we've not actually spoke about interior design at all, Susanna, which is the only reason I was coming on this podcast, by the way, <laughs> to get your to get your expertise, um, I'm, we're going to have to do a round two. I've got we'll so many. We'll definitely have to do about. that. Yes, we'll definitely. And you will get you opening some doors for your Instagram as well. So you know, then then you'll come to the full circle how you found me and how oh. you finished the whole thing. But thank you so much for coming. 
Thank you very much. It's so lovely to see you. Thank you for having me on. It's been an absolute delight, honestly. You are very welcome. I hope to see you soon in the flesh as well, Susanna. Yes. Amazing. If you like this episode and would like to help the Joy of Home podcast, please share with your friends, rate and review. And you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever else you listen to podcasts. 